The following is an interview with writer and historian Dr. Neil Langto. Why is the study of history so important? Well, that's a that's a really broad question there. <laughs> a good way to start, though. I think history is important. I mean, it's a cliche, but I think to understand the present, you do have to understand the past and understand how we came from, where we came from, you know, what are the developments of the past which led to what's happening in today's world? I mean, what kind of decisions that were made 100 years ago, how they pretty much affected the rest of the 21st, 20th century, and how they affected our own lives today. So I think that's why history is important. People need to understand that the way we live our lives now is very much based on the decisions that were made in the past and by the actors and actresses, so to speak, in the past. So I think that's why it's important. And I think, unfortunately, um, many people, Americans especially, are very ignorant about their history. Um, I, I don't think it's taught well in the schools. I think a lot of people are turned off the study of history very early on. Um, so I think that is a problem for us as a society that we're not really culturally, culturally literate when it comes to history. Um, and I wish we were. I, I really do wish we all knew more about our history in this country, in world history, not just American history. So I think it is important for, for all of us to, to understand where we came from and how we got here. So I just finished reading this, uh, this great big book, The Approaching Storm of Yours, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. And you know, in case, in case it's not clear from the title, this is about the approaching storm here is World War I. What inspired you to tackle this project? And uh, wh why is this history, this particular chapter of history, important? Well, there's a couple of different things. I mean, in the past, I had, I had done work on uh, the Negro Leagues, Negro League Baseball, uh, the business side of the leagues. I'd done some work in there. And then I'd done a biography on Roy Campanella, who was a fairly famous African-American ball player who later became disabled. Uh, and his story was fairly interesting. Um, I had done, so I'd done that. I said, I want to do something totally outside of sports uh, and baseball. And I wanted to do something uh, more, is, more as far as general American history. And I had been looking at a series of books written in the 1930s by an author named Mark Sullivan. Mark Sullivan was a journalist at that time. And he wrote a series of books known as Our Times. And it was the, he wrote about the history of the early 20th century from the perspective of someone who had lived through it himself. I and mean, he was a journalist who knew everyone. So I, I bought those books and I was thumbing through them and I just thought they were so interesting. And one of the books was about America at the time of World War I. And it discussed some of the process of how we got involved in World War I. And I thought, wow, this is so interesting. I don't even know much about it. And I had barely been exposed to it. And I think there's a story here. Um, and that's what led me to tackle the subject and as I dug into it more, I came to realize that it's so important because World War I and the outcome of World War I determines the course of the 20th century. And the outcome of World War I was very much determined by America getting involved. Uh, the two sides were pretty much at a stalemate. Uh, when the United States did join, it did eventually break that stalemate, which you know, changed the course of the, of the war and then the future of, of Europe and the future of the world. So, the decision of America to get involved in World War I was extraordinarily important. I decided I wanted to write about that. And I wanted to tell the story by covering three individuals who were very much involved in that decision. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson, 
um, former President Theodore Roosevelt and the social worker and reformer Jane Adams, you can see them on the cover. Yeah, um, yeah. These three individuals all had a very different perspective as far as what we should do in response to the war that breaks out in Europe in 1914. So that's the crux of the book is following these three individuals, their perspectives and their attempts to sort of steer America in what they consider to be the right direction. Yeah, and that takes me directly to my next question, which is that I assume most of the audience is familiar with uh, President Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, um, but I, I, I was not at all familiar um, with Adams. Can you, can you talk about uh, who she was and why she is part of this uh, conversation, why she's, why she's on the cover and on the title of this book? It's funny because Adams has, has been forgotten, I think, today. Uh, at the time, she was enormously important and famous, and she was kind of hailed as the, uh, the, the most, the most uh, famous woman in America in the early 1900s. I mean, Adams was someone who came from privilege, but she got very involved as a young woman in the settlement house movement. And the settlement houses were these, these, these institutions that were established in working class and immigrant areas and ghetto areas in the cities. Um, Hull, um, I'm sorry, Adams and her friend established Hull House in Chicago, which became incredibly influential. It was a social center for the poor immigrants that lived in this neighborhood in Chicago. And that was the jumping off point for her career when she started that. Uh, she soon became involved in all sorts of causes, reform causes in Chicago. And she just became more and more famous as this woman who was doing everything and was on the cusp of every liberal cause. Um, so she was already famous in America at the time of World War I for her work at Hull House, uh, for her work as a reformer, uh, her interest in pacifism. She was interested in the suffrage. I mean, she was just about involved in every liberal cause in America at that time. So she was a leading progressive, progressive with a small p at that time, as far as uh, the progressive movement. So she had a lot of influence in America and a lot of respect uh, among a lot, of, a lot of different people at the time. And she had worked with Roosevelt when Roosevelt had tried to run on a third party ticket in 1912 with the Bull Moose Party. Uh, she had actually supported him and, and actually seconded his nomination. But she was someone who was very much a believer in pacifism and not so much pacifism and, and sometimes the way people view it as nonviolence. Uh, she believed that war was ultimately foolish, pointless, and that in the modern era of the 20th century, countries should be able to come together and hammer out their differences. Uh, she was very much an internationalist. She believed that war basically solved very little and made things worse. So that will be her perspective um, as far as America's responsibilities in the war. But as I said, she's been forgotten today, I think needlessly, because I think she was a really amazing woman, very, very uh, intelligent, fascinating woman who, as I said, was involved in just about every liberal cause of the time. It was a leading progressive in America at that time. Yeah. The title says Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. So who won that clash? It seems like Adams didn't win the clash. Is that, is that fair to say? I don't think she did. Uh, throughout the war, Adams certainly wanted America to stay out of the war. I mean, what she wanted uh, the president to do, President Woodrow Wilson, she wanted him to somehow bring 
the combatants, the belligerent powers to the peace table. She wanted sort of America to be the, the, the jumping off point. Like America would say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna start a peace conference. We want Germany to come. We want Britain and France to come. And we want you all to come together and come to some sort of agreement to stop the fighting and, and have some sort of peace. And Adams wanted it to be done either with America doing it or in conjunction with the other neutrals. You know, there were a number of, there were a number of neutrals who managed to stay out of World War I. So as a group, the neutral powers would say, we're going we're gonna to have a peace conference. We want both sides to come to the peace table. We want to stop fighting. And let's figure out something, an agreement that we can reach to stop the slaughter in Europe. Because World War I, you know, put it bluntly, was a slaughter. It was, it was the number of people who were killed every day was just astronomical. She felt America should be doing, as she said, putting every ounce of its power on the scale for peace. That's what she felt she'd be doing. Um, Wilson felt America would waste, would be wasting its efforts doing that. You know, it would, it would not work. Uh, he just could not see America acting in that way until very, very late. In the book I talk about, this is 1916 into early 1917, Wilson's almost finally ready to try to broker or at least get the ball rolling as far as a peace agreement. Uh, he well, does well, make a- The situation Sorry. completely changed by then. It had changed and the country was being, America was getting closer and closer to being dragged into the war. And I think Wilson felt, I'll throw a Hail Mary pass and see if we can avoid being dragged into the war because the Germans are gonna bring back unrestricted submarine warfare and that's gonna drag America into the war, which he did not want really. Um, so he felt the one way out would be to somehow again, get the two sides to at least talk. And maybe if they start talking, there'll be a ceasefire and then we can, the war will end. Uh, as he discovered, he got nowhere with that in right, 1916, right. early 1917. But um, people like Adams felt that he should have tried it sooner. Um, there were other things that people felt that Wilson could have done because by 1916 to 1917, I talk about this in the book, the United States was practically financing the British war effort. Uh, they were borrowing so much money from us. I mean, if we had basically said, no, we're not, we're not, no more loans, no more nothing, um, the war, the war effort would have, would have completely collapsed. So we had it within our power, Wilson had it within his power to demand, say, okay, everything stops unless you go to the peace table. Uh, he was not willing to do that. Um, probably economic reasons came into play because many businesses and companies and, and Americans in general were getting rich during the war. Uh, from particularly our arms sales to to the Allies during the war. Okay, let's let's take a step back. I also want to talk about Teddy Roosevelt, who we haven't spoken about yet. We've covered Adams a little bit. We covered Woodrow Wilson, um, and and there's a lot more to talk about in terms of the struggle and and Teddy Roosevelt as well. But um, before we do, we I think we got to take a step back because because we've sort of uh, we've dived right into the the heart of the issue. Um, if we if we really take a step back, what was what was World War One about? World War I was about certainly all these different powers and these different alliances in Europe, all jockeying for position. You know, Germany wanting, as I said, its place in the sun. And they, they wanted the colonies, they wanted the, the, the raw materials that, you know, the, 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 the British and the French had. Uh, and Germany was basically, you know, flexing, flexing its muscles and had been flexing its muscles for years. I mean, that was, they were prepared for a war. The Germans were, were kind of envisioned that a war was going to happen at some point, and they'd been building up their military for a long time. Now, was the Kaiser necessarily expecting a war to happen with, with the whole Sarajevo assassination and, and, and the, and the Austria-Hungary punishing of, of Serbia? I don't think he was. I think he, was, he didn't expect it was going to turn into, the, into a world conflict. 
And certainly once England decided to get involved, that changed everything. And there's a famous quote from, from uh, I'm not sure if it was, it, was, it was the Kaiser or someone else in Germany saying, uh, we're doomed now, the, the British are a stubborn race, they'll never give up. So I mean, the whole, the whole thing turned once they got involved. Um, one of the things I talked about in the book was from the American perspective, no one could believe this kind of war was happening. The feeling was these kind of wars are you know, Napoleon, that's from the Napoleonic era, you know, these kind of great battles in Europe, you know, these things don't happen in the 20th century. So people in America were, were truly shocked uh, that, that this was happening. And, and particularly the, when the fighting became so bloody and, and, the, and the, the casualty lists became so high, I think people were absolutely floored uh, that this was happening in the 20th century. And of course, that's gonna be an issue for for the president is the issue of Americans taking sides in this war. Right. When we think about World War II, it's hard not to think about World War I in the shadow or in the context of World War II, I think. I mean, I think the, the great sort of uh, mystery enigma of modernity is the fact that we're living in the shadow of these two world wars and you know, hopefully doing our best to avoid a third. Um, in the context of World War II, we think about it as a battle between fascism and democracy. Um, is there an analogy to that in World War I? You described territorial expansion, uh, Germany jockeying for resources. Is, is Germany, is, is World War I also a kind of democracy versus uh, authoritarianism battle? Is it a battle between good and evil the way we think about World War II? I, I, don't, I don't think it is. I don't think it's quite as cut and dried and people realized it at the time. They felt that both sides had their issues. Uh, certainly Germany was more militaristic and, and more expansionist and perhaps in some level posed a danger, uh, a greater danger in the future to, to the United States. I mean, Roosevelt, there's uh, a quote I have in the book where Roosevelt was saying, you know, what might happen in the future is that the Germans may ally with, with Japan. He was already foreseeing that potentially happening in the future. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the English were, were colonial powers and, you know, had their colonies and they had their issues, obviously, with India and Egypt and, and, and Ireland and, and certainly the French did too. So you had some people in America felt it was, you know, both sides were, were neither side was, was angelic. Uh, but what changed a lot of Americans' perspectives was when the Germans invaded Belgium early in the war uh, and was quite brutal. Um, that turned many Americans against the Germans early on. Um, there were many Americans who didn't care one way or the other, but they preferred the, the, the Allied side for that reason because they thought the Germans were particularly brutal in that sense. But I think there's a big difference between Imperial Germany and Nazi Germany. It was, it was not, it's not as clear cut as good versus evil. I think there was a lot of gray in, in World War I. One of the things I remember from my uh, like middle school education and also comes up in the book is, is the sinking of the Lusitania. Is that, is that right? Yes. Um, and, and the way that the German, the, the submarine warfare and the sinking of American ships uh, seems to be the catalyst that drew America into World War I. Um, but to what extent was that, did that make sense? To, to, to what extent does, can we talk about the sinking of Lusitania for an for an ex, as an example? Like, is that, is that a legitimate, is that a reasonable reason to enter into a world, world war? Um, it was not. I mean, what happened with Lusitania was a British passenger liner and there were, there were Americans on board. I think there were 128 Americans who were killed with the sinking of Lusitania. Um, this is a big issue that the Wilson administration has to deal with for a couple of years. It's this, the submarine issue. Um, submarines were 
as far, they've been around before this, but they had become especially effective and deadly in World War I, and the Germans made great use of it. And the whole argument that the German, that it becomes back and forth is, should the submarines be allowed to um, attack without warning ships first? When I say warning ships, I don't mean military ships, but warning a passenger liner or a merchant ship. Um, in international law, theoretically, the submarine should have to go up to the merchant ship or the passenger liner and say, we are going to sink you, everyone get off the ship, get in your boats, then we will sink it. That's international law. Now the Germans basically start saying, we can't do that because it leaves our submarines as sitting ducks and we can't provide for the safety of all these passengers. However, attacking passenger ships in this, in this way just wasn't done before World War II, World War I, I'm sorry. So it was a tremendous shock when it happened. Although the German embassy had sent a warning out saying, if you go into this war zone, the Germans had set up a war zone around the British Isles, you are going at your own risk. Um, people on the Lusitania and the Lusitania um, captain said, oh, you know, Lusitania is very fast, no submarine will ever get us. And as it turned out, as you can see in the book, the submarine was, the submarine was very effective in sinking that and that ship went down very quickly. When you add up the number of people who were lost in submarine attacks, number of Americans who were lost in submarine attacks in this period before we go to war, it was not that many. Uh, was it worth going to war over? Probably not. The, the Lusitania did not lead Americans to World War, World war I. If Wilson had said a couple of days after the Lusitania sinking, let's go to war, I'm not sure he would have had the votes in Congress to do it. As it turned out, he, he was not gonna go that direction. Uh, Americans were very upset but that anger did dissipate after a while. Because um, again, the number of, number of individuals lost was, was fairly minimal. Now, there were some in America who felt the solution to the problem. Wilson Secretary uh, of State William Jennings Bryan felt that Americans should just be kept off these ships, these ships of belligerent powers. Uh, we should not be tr allowing travel and we should not be even shipping munitions to the allies because they can be sunk by submarines, and if they are, it's gonna bring us into the, war, into the war. Americans are gonna get caught in the crossfire. So that becomes the issue. Americans being caught in the crossfire and how do you respond to this? Wilson's belief was um, by international law, we have the right, Americans have the right to travel, we have the right to conduct trade, and you, Germany, must adjust your submarine warfare. That's what you must do. And Wilson fights this battle for a couple of years. He finally gets the Germans to agree in 1916 to submarines will operate under what's called cruiser warfare, meaning the submarines will go up to the ship, say, we're going to sink you, everyone get out, let everyone off the ship and then we'll sink you. That's cruiser warfare. And the Germans do follow that until the end of 1916, early 1917, where they feel we have to go back to unrestricted submarine warfare to win the war. And that's what brings us into the war. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's parallels between this and what happened in World War II. Um, I'm just sort of talking from memory here, so uh, I might get some details wrong, but I remember uh, one of the defendants in Nuremberg was a U-boat captain, and they brought charges against him and uh, in, in, by proxy basically against all of you know, the, the German military for their unrestricted uh, submarine warfare. And you know, commentators, I mean, I believe he was convicted and I don't, I don't think he was killed. But again, these are details I don't remember very well, but the commentators who sort of like have looked back on this history and on, on this trials have talked about how there, there's like some hypocrisy there because, you know, the allies also um, 
uh, we're guilty of similar crimes when it, when it comes to, you know, sinking ships. And the, the demand, I think that you called it cruiser warfare, if I remember correctly. Cruiser warfare, yes. Cruiser warfare um, is actually like, like pretty much impractical in like the kind of, you know, military situations that, you know, the U-boats were finding themselves in. Um, and, and there are examples uh, that, that came up in Nuremberg trial itself of like uh, trying to, German U-boats trying to do cruiser warfare in the sense of like trying to uh, offer, you know, lifeboats for survivors and things like that. And then uh, like, like getting attacked in the process of, of doing that. So the, 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 at Nuremberg, the, the defendants would say we had no choice, you know. And so, again, it, the thorniness of these like questions, questions of like issues of um, uh, ethics, you know, military ethics and things like that. Um, and also, I guess, I guess it sort of feels like when you read this book, there's just like this magnetic attraction towards war. Um, the impression that I got, and I guess you could tell me if this is reasonable or an unreasonable kind of read, is that America had no business being in the war, um, but, but we just sort of found ways to like edge ourselves into the war. You know, we found, um, you know, you know like, like, like we sort of made the choice as it is to like uh, require such a high, you know, this cruiser warfare, let's say, um, which, which, which may not have been practical or something, or, or, or of course, funding, choosing to, to, to fund the allies uh, with money and, and, and materials and weapons and things like that. And, and the consequence is like, we're, we're basically choosing to get pulled into this vortex. Is that, is that sort of a reasonable read of that history? Well, you have to consider politics of the situation too. I mean, Woodrow Wilson's the president. If Woodrow Wilson had said, uh, we're not going to trade with the allies and the, the opposing side, the Republicans, and particularly Teddy Roosevelt, who's his great rival, uh, would have would have would have gone berserk. Uh, and Ro and Wilson has to worry about running for president in 1916, so that's always an issue. You, you have a lot of different constituencies in the country. There there you know they have the great heartland in the South who, yeah, they don't care about this war. They don't think America should have any involvement. And then you have the East Coast, which is much more anglophilic. Uh, feeling like we should do everything to get involved in the war. So I think Wilson tried, tried his best to keep us out as long as he could. But then I think he came to, he came to believe that for what he wanted the post-war world to be about, you know, the League of Nations and America's place as far as our responsibilities that we had to get involved. And for Roosevelt, Roosevelt believed that if America is going to be a great power, we have to be involved in this war somehow, especially if we, if we want to be able to, in a position where we can address global wrongdoing. You know, we have to be in a position of, we have to build up our military and we have to, you know, we have to be on the right side of history. We have to show what has to be done. Um, certainly, I think Wilson resisted the tide to go to war for as long as he possibly could. Um, your point is well taken that some observers have suggested that some of the moves he made actually tilted us closer and closer to the war. Um, if he had not been so rigid about, you know, our, our neutral rights, if he had tried to back, back off as far as uh, American trade and travel. But again, I think political considerations came into play. You know, there was, he had to be reelected um, and he had to make sure that what he was doing was going to appeal to the broad segment of American society. Even when war is declared in 1917 and when, and when the, the congressional vote for war was, I think, 373 to 50. Uh, in Congress for, for war. Everyone believes that it would have been even closer if it had been a secret ballot. There are many congressmen who just were, you know, they, they had to vote against their conscience because they were afraid of the backlash. 
But there was a great deal of ambivalence about us going to war in 1917. The feeling was, this isn't really our fight. And I think Wilson, even up to the last minute, and I talk about this in the book, could have said, nope, we're not going to go yet. We're going we're to try to find a way out um, of avoiding it. But I think he had come to the conclusion that if he wanted to have a place at the peace table, which he very much did, Wilson wanted to be there when peace is made and wanted to influence the peace and influence the post-war world, which he did at Versailles, he had to put an American army in the field in this war. And I think that was part of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and maybe just another way of, of trying to like reframe what I was sort of thinking about earlier is that it's not just the politicians who maybe made mistakes or made moves that drew us into the war, but it just, it just feels like the psychology of Americans, the psychology of you know, just human beings in general, when there's this big war going on in Europe, people find themselves attracted to that combat, you know, in, in weird ways. Um, they, they sort of, um, yeah, like, like, like the sinking of, of passenger ships, uh, it's these sort of like small casualty events that have such a psychological resonance or such, such psychological, um, such a, they, they create such a reaction that, that like escalates in such a dramatic way. So anyway, that was sort of like, um, I, I guess, an angle that, that sort of stood out to me. People are very emotionally involved in the war before we're in it. Um, the newspapers are chock full of war news. I mean, every, every day it's front page news. There's just there's so much war stuff. Uh, so people are, there's, there's tons of books being written about the war. And this is before we're involved, remember, for, those, for the listeners and viewers of this right now. We're talking 1914, 15, 16 in America. Um, I have a quote in the book of an English woman who came to the United States in 1914, and she wrote, she said, Americans are more obsessed with the war than the Europeans are. I mean, they were very, it was almost like a, a baseball game, you know, watching, reading the scores, taking sides, you know, taking sides every day. So people do get very emotionally involved. A lot of people, in, you, have, you have a country of immigrants, people have relatives on both sides fighting in the, in, in the military um in europe then you have americans who go over to fight i mean that's one of the stories in the book is is the story of james norman hall the the author from iowa who goes he enlists in the british army in 1914 and goes to fight so there are americans who are serving in this war before we're ever involved um, so it, it it does touch us in many ways and it's this decision where we're going to go are we going to get involved are we going to put an army in the field to participate in this war. And that, that is the crux of the decision that these three are, are, are wrestling with and what Wilson's wrestling with. Uh, and eventually it does happen, obviously, but it's a very long and tortured path to war. Yeah. One of the pieces of the story, which feels very uh, relevant to you know, contemporary times, uh, you talk about in the book how there's all this, this word, all this news, or at times maybe rumors of German atrocities um, from the war. Uh, and, and there's also, there's, there's, uh, again, there's the, the question of this um, unrestricted submarine warfare, which is, uh, killing civilians. Um, how effective was the media at keeping people informed and abreast of what's true? How, how informed were average Americans, uh, about, you know, these questions of, of to what extent Germany was committing war crimes, let's say? Well, the, the first indication of war crimes was the invasion of Belgium. Um, in 1914, um, and immediately the Allies claimed there were atrocities, there were shooting of civilians and things like that. Um, however, American journalists who were on hand covering it came home and said, well, this is an exaggeration. This didn't necessarily happen the way the, the, the Allies are saying. 
Um, the Allies later on in 1915 came out with the Bryce Report, which seemed to confirm a lot of these atrocities. But, and, and now we do know in the 21st century that certainly the German invasion of Belgium was extremely brutal and there was were definitely uh, atrocities performed. At the time, no one was com completely sure the war was on. And there were people in the United States who felt that, well, the allies are exaggerating this, you know, for their side. Um, I will say that most of the news that came to the United States was through the Allied filter more than the German filter. Uh, the Allies had more influence here and more sympathy here. And the, the cable, the transatlantic cable had been cut um, from Germany, making it very difficult for their, their perspective to get across uh, um, to, our, to our country. So the Germans were always fighting a, a difficult battle in America. You know, they're both trying to win the minds and hearts of, of America as far as um, propaganda for their side. But I would say the Allies got the better of that as far as, as, far as what's getting out there. Um, the Germans shot themselves in the foot also with a lot of the stuff they were pulling in this country. They were always trying to interrupt the arms sales to the United States. So there was sabotage going on. There was that kind of stuff the Germans were doing and they got caught a few times doing that. So that of course soured many people further against the, against the Germans in this country. So I say in general, um, the Allies did a much better job of getting their message across and were successful in that. Yeah. yeah. Also, the intercepted uh, telegram to, to Mexico, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, the, the Zimmerman telegram. Yeah, that's 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 late in the war where the Germans sent this telegram, um, basically trying to lure the Mexicans onto their side. And actually, the, the whole the whole point of the, the Zimmerman telegram was to try to get J Mexico to act as sort of a, a liaison to Japan. They were hoping that the Germans were hoping to maybe get Japan interested, Jap Japanese might be interested in California. It was a crazy cockamamie scheme that, the, that some, someone in the uh, German, German uh, foreign office had cooked up, uh, but it was in fact intercepted by the British who sat on it for a while and then finally turned it over to the United States. Um, but the Zimmerman telegram's importance also has probably been exaggerated as far as it did not stampede the country into war. It got people excited for a couple of weeks, but even after the Zimmerman telegram, people in America, a lot of them were still not keen on going to war. Let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt, who, who appears uh, on, on the cover. It seems to me like Teddy Roosevelt is like a caricature of Americanism. It's like a, like a apotheosis of like a stereotype of an Americanism. Um, can you talk a little bit about the character of Teddy Roosevelt and why is it such a larger than life character? Well, Roosevelt was someone who was just a very colorful figure. I mean, he was never at a loss for words. I mean, so many things about him. He was an incredibly intelligent man. He was someone who was obsessed, obsessed with physicality. And he was very recognizable with his glasses and his, his grin and his, and his saying delighted and bully and things like that. So he had been a fixture in American society for like 20 years at the time of when the war breaks out in 1914. Um, Unfortunately for, for Roosevelt in 1914, it's, it's, it's a very difficult time for him. He had been president, uh, he'd been out of the White House since 1909. And since leaving the White House, things had just gone sour for him. Um, he had been unable to win back the White House in 1912 with his run as, as a bull moose candidate with the Progressive Party. And in 1914, his health was starting to fail. He, he caught a fever when he went to Brazil for his expedition. And he never really got over that either. So when the war begins, it's very hard for him in that he's, he's kind of foundering. Um, his political party, the Progressive Party is, is foundering. And 
he hates Wilson with a passion. He absolutely despises this man and everything he stands for. He feels that he's against everything that Roosevelt stands for. And he comes to believe that Rose Wilson is butchering the American response to the war. Uh, he, you can read in the, in the book, he pretty much douses him in every possible insult. He says he's the worst president we ever have, we ever had. Roosevelt comes to believe that the United States, the one thing it should do is start preparing. Military preparedness becomes his goal. The United States has a pitiful army in 1914. I think it's like 100,000 or so, it's nothing. And Roosevelt believes that if we're ever going to be able to do anything, whether it's in this war or in the future, we have to build up our, our military apparatus. For us to do yeah. well in the war, for us to do well in the world, for us to be able to act against global wrongdoing, we need a strong military, and we don't have that now. And if we think we're going to have any place at the peace table, we need to have a strong military. So he believes that Wilson's not acting on military preparedness. He believes that Wilson should have said something about Belgium. He should have protested it. Um, he, it, it some of it's personal. I mean, some of it is, is genuine policy differences, but also Wilson is someone he cannot stand. The two men come to, they, they hate each other. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the triangle on the cover of this book is Wilson and Roosevelt and the disdain these two men hold for each other. Um, and it all kind of comes to a head late in the war, but go ahead, you were gonna ask a question. Yeah, well, it seems to me like it, it's further than that because it's not just preparedness. Uh, I mean, I, there's quotes in there from Roosevelt. Uh, he says something like, um, if, if my son wouldn't serve in like in a war, it would be like my daughter, you know, refused to raise a family or something. This idea that there's a moral obligation to serve. He was like, like war obsessed. Like, like he wanted to die in war. He wanted to, that was his dream uh, to go over to Europe in the end and, and die a, a heroic death. Um, he was, he was, he believed in like uh, war is like this redemptive, uh, redemptive thing that like makes life meaningful. I think to, to an extent he did. Um, I hate to pigeon him, pigeonhole him so simply. And what you're saying is a lot of, what a lot of his critics would have said that he was, he was obsessed with war. I he would he would he would counter that by saying when I was president not not one American man died uh, not military died died in any kind of military expedition and I I I won and I won the Nobel Peace Prize I helped bring peace to 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 the Russians and the Japanese that I know more about peace uh, than Wilson does but but that I'm a realist that's what he would have said I'm a realist and I believe that my approach is we have you know it's all pie in the sky to love peace but you have to have a military to back it up now. I would agree that he did have this belief that military service was important. He believed it was as fundamental as voting. It's like part of your citizenship. Um, and I think there was at the end of his, you know, at the end of his life, particularly you know, during the war, I think he that would have been something he would have loved to have done because he, he wasn't president anymore, which he really wanted to be. And I think serving in the military again, you know, he'd been with the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War, would have kind of been a nice way to end his life. Um, for him, for him personally. So I do think, yeah, there was a sense of him which he, which he did have some sort of passion. I think it's all part of his passion for what he considered to be bravery and manliness. And what's the epitome of bravery and manliness in serving in the military and fighting? Uh, so I think that for him, that was incredibly important, but he believed that every American man should serve. Uh, he also believed this would be a good thing for democracy, the idea that 
the poor man and the wealthy man would serve together and the military be some sort of melting pot to bring these people together, almost like the idea of a draft later on. I mean, he was actually, the country was not ready for selective service, but he was actually starting to consider that as being a possibility. Um, so I, I do think he was, he did lean in that direction. Wilson, however, was not at all in that, in that mindset. He was not someone who was, who was militarily obsessed. Uh, I have, in, in the book I mentioned, I think Wilson fired a gun once in his entire life. Uh, as opposed to someone like Roosevelt, who was a hunter, big game hunter, and loved his guns and loved his military. But again, I, I don't want people to get the impression that Roosevelt was just a one-dimensional um, military war-obsessed person, because I think that would be would be selling a little short. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct, that he was also very much concerned with world peace, and he believed in, uh, you know, using, like you said, preparedness and things like that to uh, avert war. But there is seems to me that there's a sense in which he's really out of touch. Like uh, he fought in the Spanish-American War with the Rough Riders, as, as you mentioned. Um, and, and he wrote like the most glowing, romantic reviews of that experience. Right. He, he, he that was like the greatest experience of his life. And um, this idea in the end of the book, uh, which, which to me just feels permeated with like a deep sadness, like sense of out of touch is uh, Roosevelt, like like trying to beg Wilson to like send him. To Europe to fight in World War One, um, which just seems like like totally like disconnected with like the realities of modernity, like moder- modern warfare, like modern armies. You know, like it's not like the Wild West where like you you know hop on your horse and like you know pick a fight or something. Like it just um, it seems a little crazy. And then there's also seems to be like a, a personal transformation when he loses his son uh, in World War One, and of course he's devastated. And it's like the the actual experience of, of like what modern war really is seems to like come home for him a little bit. Is it, does that does that make sense? Well, I, I think his his fantasy, and I think we can call it a fantasy, was that he would somehow be allowed to raise volunteers and go to Europe. And we, this had been done during the Spanish American War. Of course, that was twenty years ago, and as you just mentioned, it's a very very different war. Um, to his credit, he raised, a, I mean, he had this division all ready to go when America goes to war. I think, and, and there were like thousands of people who had signed up for this and were willing to follow him and go to Europe in the, the Teddy Roosevelt division, whatever it was going to be called. Um, there, it, it was, it's a very interesting situation because he, you know, he hates Wilson so much but he has to humble himself and go to the White House and try to talk up this division. And, and Wilson, I know, loved, must have loved this. He had, he had to, he had to, had Roosevelt, he, and I would say he begged him, that may be too strong. I mean, they had a conversation, um, and I think Roosevelt was hoping that Wilson would see the light and let him go. Um, I guess there was a very, very small chance where Wilson would say, yeah, let him go. And the, the, the reason why he might've let him go, and some people said let him go, because if he's over there, he can't be criticizing him every second like he'll be doing if he's here. He'll be a he'll be a member of the military and he can't criticize the president anymore. Uh, so he'll be out of the way. Um, they probably could have stuck him there and they could have probably put a real, you know, they put him in a position where he really wasn't commanding troops or something. So it, it could have been done, uh, I think. But I think, you know, Wilson is no way. No way is he going. Um, and also... There's some there's some practical reasons too. I mean, if you look in the book, there's pictures of Will, Roosevelt. Roosevelt was not even in good shape in 1915, 16, 17. I mean, he'd gotten heavier. He probably would have dropped dead of a heart attack in the first week. I think overseas. Um, I think Wilson was also in the Democrats in general were also thinking 
Suppose he goes over there, somehow his, his division is heroic and they win a battle or something. He's gonna come back and he'll be even more popular and he'll run for president in 1920 and possibly beat Wilson if Wilson goes for a third term. So there were, there were lots of things that were pointing, uh, pushing Wilson not to let him go. Uh, and of course, Wilson eventually says, nope, he's not going. And that embitters him, embitters Roosevelt even more the rest of his life. In the last couple of years of his life, he's just, I think his hatred of Wilson, which is already astronomical, jumps exponentially. Um, there were there were people in America who felt that Wilson should just let him go. You know, Roosevelt wants to do this thing. He is going to at least he's got a lot of troops ready to go. Let him go. Um, but there were just as many who felt it would be foolish. And as it turned out, he was not allowed to go. Yeah, and, and it seems to me like World War One is this real turning point uh, in history. I'm not the first person to think that, <laughs> but the sense that like if you contrast the romanticism. Of, of Roosevelt's military exploits in the Spanish-American War and the way he writes about it um, with, with, the, with the horrors of what World War I actually was. Um, you know, my, my, I'm sure there's you know, countless, countless books one could point to, but the one that I'm most familiar with is All Quiet on the Western Front, um, where you just read about soldiers losing their minds, like go, losing their minds because of the horror, um it, like smashing their heads into a wall and going crazy because of the artillery fire you know and things like that um it just it's just like a different regime you know and that's that's like the modern that's the modern world that we now you know squarely exist in yeah and, and in the book as, as i mentioned earlier in our interview i talked you know james norman hall whose story i i use in this book as the kind of the the, the, the prototypical american who goes over to serve and Paul wrote letters back to his family and to his friends. And he, he talks about this. I mean, he saw, saw people, as you mentioned, basically, you know, lose their minds. I mean, he watched people being blown to bits. He watched his friend. I mean, yes, it's an incredibly violent conflict that was unlike any that had come before. Um, I think Roosevelt had to know about because you have to realize Roosevelt had, had a correspondence with, with everyone in the world. And yeah, he had people in England writing him all the time. He had friends in England, friends in France. I mean, he got thousands of letters a day, literally. So he certainly was probably knew what it was like over there. There's quotes from him where Roosevelt said something like, uh, you know, I, I, I probably would crack after the first week from the strain of this, but at least I'll give them a week. You know, like, I think, but I think that would have been okay for him. I think to die, die in combat would have been, that's okay. I would have done my job, I would have done my duty. But yes, it would, it would have been silly to send a 50, let me say 57 year old, 57 year old man, 58 year old man who wasn't in great shape. Um, what can he do? Can he, can, he, can he command troops? His experience was fairly limited too. So he really wasn't, I mean, he, he, did, he, had, he had done the Rough Riders 20 years earlier. Everyone still called him Colonel, but he really was no military genius. So what could he have done? And then the other issue was, they were there, the, the Pentagon, such as it was, there was no Pentagon in those days, but the, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff and people like that, they didn't want it either. They didn't want, they really did not want Roosevelt being sent over there. Um, there was also concern what the Allies would say. They would feel like, oh, we got an ex president here. You know, I guess we have to check with him with everything. You know, he, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, the question became, well, if you can't do that, there are other things you can do here in this country. And then he kind of like, not really. I feel like that's the one thing I could do. So he ends up not really doing anything during the war itself beyond, you know, writing and making speeches and things like that. But he's not actively involved in 
anything directly with the government. What what is your what was your writing process like and your research process like for uh, writing this book? Well, for all these individuals, they had an astronomical amount of correspondence. So much of the book is based on their writing, their letters that they sent and received. And in those days, much of the business of life was conducted through letters, uh, not through telephone. I mean, telephones existed, but most people were still conducting business by letters. And in those days, there were two and sometimes three mail deliveries a day. So to understand these individuals and understand their lives and what they were going through, it's necessary to go through their correspondence. So that was a big part of the research process is simply to go through that. And then you have a number of other collections to go through of individuals. For example, Colonel House, uh, who's a key figure in this book, Colonel House was Wilson's advisor. And Colonel House kept a diary for many, many years. And that diary gives you an in-depth and intimate look at the Wilson White House and what's going on in, in the country. So that was a major source for this book. So that was a big part. Uh, the newspapers were also extremely important. And in writing this book, I went through a daily newspaper from every day from 1914 through about the middle of 1917. So I read a newspaper usually from New York, Chicago, and Washington, uh, using that as a way to understand what's happening in the country at the time. And these little stories are integrated into the book. For example, in 1916, you have a polio epidemic breaking out in America, um, which does affect all of the main characters in this book. And you have Roosevelt being very concerned with his daughter in, in Oyster Bay, where they live, uh, a polio reaching them. So it's, it's not a straight political book. It's a book of, about characters. It's a book about people and their experiences during this time in American history. Yeah, of course, the, the section about the polio epidemic really uh, jumped out at me because of its uh, resonance for modern, uh, our, our current epidemic. Um, what, do you, what do you have in mind uh, for, a future, for the future? Are you, are you considering any future uh, research projects after this one? Uh, not at this moment. I mean, I'm sort of just starting to think about the next book, but uh, at this moment, I don't have any, any definite, anything definite on, on, on my plate. I still have to talk to my agents and people like that and see what's, what might be um, feasible. I mean, these books take a long time to write. This particular book took almost five years. I mean, it's a long book. There's a lot going on, in it, but it, it, it's a very long process. It's a very labor-intensive pro process. And um, you have to really, it has to be a labor of love because if it's not, it's, uh, <laughs> it becomes difficult, so. Well, congratulations on uh, completing uh, such an arduous, intense process. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything you wanna leave us with about you know, where people uh, can find you or, or look for you or any, any closing thoughts about the book um, that you, know, you want to leave people with uh, before we finish? Uh, well, you can reach me through my website, which is www.neillankto.com. The, the book is available at all bookstores, the, the, the usual suspects and any indie bookstores. And I think there's a, on my website, there's uh, links or even on the uh, um, Penguin Random House website, there are links to it. Um, as I said, I, I hope this would appeal to anyone who's interested in history. Uh, you don't have to be an expert or, or even know anything about this period. I think you'll, you'll find that these stories are interesting of these individuals and what they experienced. And 
and how we came to make this decision that changed the 20th century. Indeed, wonderful. Uh, Dr. Langto, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much.